You can open your <coughs> Bibles with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Um, as you're turning to John chapter 14, I do have one disclaimer to give you. You'll notice in the bulletin, it says that we're going to be going all the way down through verse 31. And I must confess to you, I overshot a little bit this week. I had planned on going through verse 31, but in study, the Lord would not let me get past. Um, I believe it's verse 27. I could not get past that. And so, Lord willing, the next time we gather, we'll take up the verses that follow that. But for context's sake, I will ask you if you're able at this time to stand and read together with me, beginning at verse 25. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 25, we read this. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me again in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, I ask that you would be gracious once again. Oh, God, we need the mighty working of your spirit. If we are to not only understand these words, but to have them applied to our hearts in an experience of these things. Oh, God, would you give us an experience of peace as the Lord Jesus Christ is manifest to us. Father, I pray that you give me clarity and the ability to communicate what is true. Father, guard me from misspeaking. Oh, God, we need you to visit us with power, with a demonstration of your faithfulness to keep your promises. Oh, God, I praise you that you are faithful. And I ask that you would work in this place now, work through me and help us to see you rightly that you would be glorified. Help us to see your son as he is, that we might glorify him. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, I've got one other confession before we get started. I really seriously considered leaving the Gospel of John today, preaching a sermon from another text, potentially from Luke or another Gospel account of Jesus birth and his incarnation and coming into the world. And I, I was at one point planning on doing just that. 
until my eyes begin lingering on the coming verses. Particularly, you'll see in verse 27, this emphasis on peace. Peace I leave with you. And I could think of no better subject or theme to deal with on Christmas Day than the peace of God. The peace that God promises to give us in Christ. And I don't believe there's anything more relevant to the world around us. We're going to get there as we move through our text today, but just ask yourself this question. When you look around the world, do you see very much peace? Honestly. And I'm not just talking about a political level. I'm talking about relationships. When you look at your spouse, is there peace? Do you have peace within that relationship? I know that was a strong emphasis from our our conference that we recently had and being peacemakers and reconciling with one another. But in this context, we're hearing about a peace that is otherworldly, a peace that is surpasses anything that you might come to expect. Not just nations that are agreeing not to fight, but a peace that surpasses all of that. It's perfectly fitting and relevant. And if we don't understand the peace that Jesus has come to bring, the peace He's talking about, we might as well stop all of our Christmas celebrations right now. There is no Christmas celebration without this very peace. And as we saw many of those songs we sang Focusing on and around peace. So we begin with those thoughts by looking at verse 25 together. And we read, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. The first thing we notice is Jesus is reiterating the reality of his pending departure. That's something that's been a common repeated theme in the last number of weeks we've been in John. He's about to die. He's going to the cross to die for the sins of his people. And then after his burial and resurrection, he's going to spend another 40 days ministering to them. And then after he commissions them to take the gospel to the nations and tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit who's promised, he's going to ascend back to the Father. He's not going to be with them any longer physically. And I know we've continued to emphasize that, but... Jesus is continuing to emphasize that. And I don't think we maybe grasp the significance of that. He's not going to be with them any longer. And there must have been, I imagine, I know, a great comfort and peace in these disciples' souls at the presence of Jesus. As long as He's with them, they can face all manner of difficulty and yet they can at the end of the day say, well, He knows what He's doing. We're going to trust Him. And the idea, the prospect of him going away surely was a devastating one. And I believe even now we already see an application to us. You see, every believer here, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know something of the presence of Christ in your life. You know something of Jesus ministering to you and you have a, a confidence that He's with you, that He cares about you. You see, there was a time whenever... He would not, they would not know His physical presence. And they would be left feeling hopeless, anxious, and terrified at His absence. That's the state of these disciples. That's, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. He's saying, I'm not going to be with you forever. I'm not always going to be with you physically. I'm telling you these things so that they'll be a, a, a comfort and minister to you in my absence. But consider with me what is depicted in the Scriptures. What, how did the disciples respond to His absence? 
Well, from Luke 24, 21, Jesus is interacting with these disciples of His on the walk or road to Emmaus. And they're despairing. They're utterly cast down because He's died. And the way they put it is, we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And so you see in these people, Jesus approaches them and they're, they're just so distraught and sad. They can't get over it. They thought it had been He. He's died. He's not with them any longer. Their initial response to His departure by death. See, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be with you. Well, He departed once in death. And His death, His departure when He died, it produced devastation and despair. But as I mentioned before, He comes and appears to them for a little while longer. For 40 days, He shows Himself. He demonstrates to eyewitnesses, over 500 of them, that He actually rose from the dead physically. And then He departed again. If you look with me just briefly at Acts chapter 1, we see the attitude of the disciples at Jesus' departure from them. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, we read, And when He said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. You see, these disciples... After He's been ministering to them for 40 days, they're gazing into heaven after Him. He's departed on the clouds and they just are fixated. They're stuck in that. They're immobilized almost. It's like they can't take their eyes off of where He went. He's gone. He's no longer with them. And they're stuck looking there, longing for His, his return as if He was going to return immediately in the blink of an eye, come right back to them. His physical return is what they're looking for. And they're filled with dread until we see these two angels appear to them and remind them of His promise and His directions for them. Jesus has told them, go and wait in Jerusalem. Don't stand here on this mount watching me gazing into heaven. No, you've got things to do. And I'm arguing that Jesus knew this. He knew the, the despair they would feel. And I want to ask you, is there an application in this for you today? Are you able to enter into how these disciples feel whenever they're wishing that He had not left them? you ever feel hopeless? you feel like, Jesus, is He really with me? Is God really with me in my life? you ever feel that way? Well, we have not known the physical presence of Christ, have we? If you tell me you have, we need to talk afterwards. Jesus has not returned physically a second time yet. 2 Corinthians 5.16, Paul says, From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You see, there was a time the disciples, the apostles, even Paul says we knew Jesus according to the flesh, but no longer. He's not with us physically. We regard him no longer that way. You see, our knowledge and our experience of the presence of Christ is not physical, but it is according to his word and his spirit. And even still, even yet, we, we connect with who Christ is here and now through His Word and through His Spirit, and yet we go through seasons when we're not experiencing His presence. You read your Bible, and it's just not that compelling to you. It's dry. It's dead. You have to force yourself into it. You, you're not feeling it right now. Or 
You go to pray and your prayers, they die on the lips. You're not full of an excitement to communicate with your God. You really don't care. What do you do when you don't feel the presence of Christ at work in your life that way? Do you see how there's a parallel and their experience up until this point is here's the Lord with us, but no longer the day's coming. And for us, if you're a Christian who's known the presence of God in your life, you ever reach those points where it's I don't know. You're just at the point of wanting to give it all up. What's the point in this? There's an application in what Jesus is telling us today. We often feel that there's a war raging in our hearts. Our minds are overwhelmed by these things and we have no sense of peace and rest in the presence of Christ. And I'm arguing that Jesus is saying what He's saying to us today because He knows with perfect knowledge the despair of the disciples. And He knows that we often mask our doubt and our confusion and despair with smiles, with happy faces, and that this is what prompts Jesus to tell them and us these things. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. Now let me ask this question. What does He mean by these things? What is Jesus saying when He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you? We're making the point that His focus is when I'm not with you, you're going to need to remember some stuff. Well, what things is he talking about? What does he mean by that? These things are meant to be a source of strength and comfort and encouragement when he's no longer with them. What are they? Well, I did not go into our previous message in the context as I normally do because I knew we were about to. And that's what we're going to look at now. Jesus has just been telling them in our last message. We saw where he said, whoever has my commandments, verse 21, and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And before that, we saw in verse 18, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so what Jesus is talking about, he says, these things, the reality of my coming to you and ministering to your soul, even though I'm gone physically, that's what I'm saying. I'm telling you these things about my coming because I'm not going to be with you forever. In the context, these things refers to the words that he's been speaking to them and primarily his promise to manifest himself to them by his word and by his spirit. That flows immediately into the next verse, verse 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The first and primary thing Jesus wants them to be aware of is the necessity, the absolute necessity of the working of the Holy Spirit. There can be zero peace. Whatever peace Jesus is talking about is not possible without the Holy Spirit bringing it to you. You will not know this peace without the third person of the Trinity. And think about how this manifests or works itself out in the disciples. One demonstration of this is the Spirit's power is seen in Peter. You recall prior to the Spirit being sent, we saw Peter doing what? Cowering in fear as he denied the Lord to a little girl. And then he doesn't stop at that. Peter goes on, even after the resurrection, you'll recall, and he says, I go, I'm going fishing. 
The Lord's risen from the dead. He says, I'm going back to what I know. I'm going to busy myself. And isn't that what we do? We're talking about peace. When you don't have peace in your soul, you're prompted to go out and find something to do. I've got to keep myself busy because if I sit still long enough, I'm going to be aware of the fact that I'm, I'm not okay inside. I don't have a confidence in God's goodness in my life. I've got to find something to do. So he denies the Lord. He's terrified and he runs off fishing again in the midst of his own impatience and anxiety. The peace which this Holy Spirit brings and brought to Peter was such that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, this same man who had been formerly ruled by fear, even though he loved the Lord, ruled by fear and restlessness, he stands up in front of 3,000, more than 3,000 people, and he proclaims with absolute confidence and full conviction, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ of all. The work of the Spirit is it produces in you a confidence in God and, and, and really the ability not to be careless in the world and just go along not worrying about what you do or what might happen to you, but such a confidence in God and His power and His leading and His working that you can proclaim what He gives you to proclaim though it may cost you everything. The next thing we see in verse 26, that's part of, and we're going to flesh out later in the message what that, that work of the Holy Spirit looks like practically and realistically. How Peter and us are to come to that confidence. But before that, look at this one little word in the middle of verse 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. See, an important truth in this text, and it would be easy for us to pass by. It's definitely not the primary focus of this text, but it is an important truth, and it's evident in the text. It's worth mentioning is that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as He. Why is that relevant, do you suppose? The Holy Spirit is a He. Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. Like in Star Wars, as you might think, People will talk even right now in this season about the spirit of Christmas. What is the spirit of Christmas? It's not this spirit, I can tell you that. The spirit of Christmas people have in mind, it's not necessarily a, a malicious thing. It's more of a, a general attitude towards kindness, generosity, and warm feelings. You watch a Hallmark movie and you see this time of year, there's this spirit that's infectious and it's kindness and goodness. And that's really the spirit of Christmas. And people, I believe, have the same kind of thoughts about the Holy Spirit of God. And it is absolutely wrong. He is a person. He is mighty and eternal. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is God, the Spirit. And we must not quench or belittle Him. He deserves our praise and our adoration and our thanksgiving that the Father has worked by this Spirit in us. He, he is personal. And that's very fundamental and foundational to Christianity. But I'm telling you, it's very likely that we don't acknowledge Him as we ought to. The Scriptures reveal Him to be personal. In the last part of verse 26, Jesus tells us what He's going to do. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The final thing I want to consider with you in verse 26 
is the specific way in which Jesus promises that he's going to manifest himself to us by the spirit. That's what all of this is flowing out of. He's been talking with Judas, not Iscariot, saying the way I'm going to manifest myself to you is through this word of mine. You're loving my word and I'm coming to you and making my home with you. Now he's telling us what that's going to look like. This is the specific way you are going to experience the manifest presence of Christ. That's what he's saying. In this specific way, he says it's going to be according to teaching you all things and bringing to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The point I'm making is that we're not free to claim, expect, or presume that Jesus is going to come to us in any way that we want him to. He has told us the parameters around which he's going to come to his own people. He's told us what it's going to look like. And there is a a measure of mystery to this. There is a subjective experience. The spirit applies this to us, but it's going to be according to this word, to this book. He says he will teach you all things. The first thing we see about that is that the spirit is seen to minister to us by teaching us, by teaching us. This means that the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work, is fundamentally doctrinal. You understand what I mean? The work of the Holy Spirit is not firstly or primarily about warm fuzzies inside or feeling good or feeling anyway. That's not His primary ministry. His first ministry is to work something in us, to teach us something. It's something we learn, something we know. God's given us a brain in order that we would know Him and glorify Him, and it has to do with our learning. From Acts chapter 2, we mentioned Pentecost already. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, most of us, when we imagine the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we might think, well, that's going to have to do primarily with our fellowship with one another, breaking of bread, sharing meals, smiling, laughing, and our praying. And those things are wonderfully true. But notice the first thing, to the apostles' teaching. And the order of this verse, the order of these elements of of what makes up and constitutes a church, the order is important. The first and immediate result that we see, these are these 3,000 people that have been saved on Pentecost. They've heard the gospel. They've come to Christ. The first thing that happens to those who are regenerated is they have a devoted appreciation for the apostles' teaching. They want to be taught. They want to learn. If you have no interest in learning or being taught concerning the things of God, it is likely that the Holy Spirit is not working in you and that you are lost. If you don't desire to grow in your knowledge of God. Now that may look different and some people are going to be able to go further and higher than others. But if you don't desire to grow in your knowledge of Him, it is likely that you don't know Him. We see Him working. He's teaching us. Jesus says He will teach us all things. The second way that the Holy Spirit ministers to us has to do with the content of what it is that he teaches us. What does Jesus mean when he says the spirit will teach us all things? What is he saying to you? Is he talking about lottery numbers? The Holy Spirit's going to tell me this kind of a thing. Is he talking about end time prophecies? What does he mean? The doctrine that he promises to teach us is according to the words of Jesus Christ. He says he will teach us all things. What does that mean? Jesus says he will teach you all things. And then he says. He will bring to your remembrance 
all that I've said to you. So what he's specifically talking about, the work of the Spirit, the way you're going to experience the presence of Christ is the Holy Spirit bringing the words of Christ to you. The Word coming alive to you by the Spirit. That's what this means. The doctrine He promises to teach us is according to His Word. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to take the words that Jesus has already spoken and to apply them to the hearts and minds of His people in an effectual way. Now, I believe the primary and immediate fulfillment of this should be very obvious to us is that these apostles who would record the New Testament years later were carried and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write all that they wrote. Think of this. Jesus is saying to them, He's going to teach you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance all that I've said. You realize these apostles who wrote your New Testament? That they weren't sitting there with a pen and paper as Jesus is talking, writing it down. That's not what happened. They're experiencing this with Him as they're following Him. And then years later, years later, the Holy Spirit brings them to pen these things. He, he brought to their remembrance the words of Jesus. And be thankful that He did. Our understanding of these things is according to the work and ministry of the Spirit of God. That's the most immediate application. But there is another fulfillment that comes to us. And this fulfillment gives me a great deal of comfort as a preacher. You know what it is? The Holy Spirit, this promised helper, is not only promised to the disciples here, but to you and I as well. And this is what this means. He is able to take the words of Christ, even the ones being proclaimed to you now, and to plant them in you and bring them to your heart and mind later, even if you're not able to recall them right now. Why do I say that encourages me as a preacher? Because sometimes I preach and I wonder, are they getting anything out of this right now at all? But I trust by the Spirit of God that things are being planted in you that you're not even aware of. The Holy Spirit bringing to your remembrance the things that you're hearing. I can even recall at times going up to a preacher after I listened to him preach and wanting to really encourage him and to show how spiritual I was and talk to, talk to him about the sermon and getting in front of him and not being able to remember a single thing he said. And that was good. But then weeks later, in conversation with someone, a thought coming to me, and I can't, where did I learn that? That was so good. Where did I learn that? And all of a sudden, oh, that was in that sermon. That was something I heard. Something has been planted in me. He'll bring to your remembrance the words of Christ. The way that I've come to think about it is that you may not always remember the sermon, but the sermon remembers you. More appropriately, the Spirit remembers you if you're His and will bring these things to you. And when you take and consider these realities together, then we can say this with confidence. That our experience of the manifest presence of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is going to be intimately related to our knowledge of Jesus and His Word. If you want to have a greater sense of the presence of Christ in your life, read your Bible and pray that God by His Spirit would apply it to you. If you have a sense of lowness or separation from God, you're not experiencing God, get in His Word. Get in His Word. That's where He promises to man. And it's not only the Word. The Spirit must bring it alive to you. But if you sit, if you're unwilling to go to the source, the fountain that's been given to us of truth in this book. I don't want to hear any complaints about feeling absent from God. Those who sit and twiddle their thumbs with no interest in reading the scriptures. Why should they expect to know God if they're ignoring the means he's given them to know him by? 
This comes as a rebuke to me as many as as much as anyone else. But that is what Jesus is saying. If you want to know these realities in your life. And then that carries us into our, our focus of thought today in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus is making a glorious promise to you here this morning. Listen to what He's saying to you. Peace I leave with you. And this is not... Jesus is not changing the subject all of a sudden. He's not going on to some other thought. He's been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and bringing His Word to your mind. And He's telling you the result of that. The inevitable result of that is that you would have an experiential peace in your soul that's according to and fixed upon the words of Christ. He says, peace I leave with you. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My peace I give to you. And we read later, further on, after all this expectation from that promise in Isaiah 9 until we get to Luke 2, And we hear angels rejoicing and proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's this fulfillment of peace. Jesus is saying, my peace I give to you. The end of your knowledge of Christ and his word by the spirit is that you would know peace. What is the source of this peace we're promised? What? How is it that you're going to have an experience of peace And in the context, this is talking clearly about a subjective experience. We're going to get to what produces that experience. But Jesus is saying, he's not just saying the war has stopped between you and God. Now you get to go to heaven. He's saying you're going to know my peace. The spirit's going to work in you so that you have a sense of rest. You actually experience this. You're not just looking forward to it someday and miserably plodding through life. You actually know peace. That's the context. But how do I get that? How do I come to experience that? How am I not just going to be someone who looks at my life and says, well, it really is hard now, but I know someday it's going to be peaceful. Is there a way that we get to have peace now? You look at Paul. He writes to the church at Philippi and he says, I'm content. Chapter 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I've been high, I've been low, I've suffered, I've been in prison, I've been free, but I'm content. Why? That kind of peace, the kind of peace that looks at life and says this hurts, but I'm okay. I can go forward. How do we get that kind of peace? What's the basis for it? It's not something you can pretend to have. You can't pretend to have peace. Well, you can, but it's not real. You may convince others, but in your soul, are you at rest before God? Something we've been seeing is that the way in which we're supposed to experience the manifest presence of Christ is by the Spirit applying His Word to us. And Jesus says the result of that is peace. You're going to have peace. 
what words, which ones specifically do you suppose bring us this peace? How do we come to enter in to Jesus' words about peace here? Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are two realities here. There is the one sense that the war against God and between you and God is over. You're no longer at war with God. You said, I never was. Yes, you were. If you're not a believer, you're currently at war with God. But if you are trusting in Christ, you're believing something, then you have peace with God that there's no longer warfare. You're not in danger of God's wrath and judgment. There's peace on an objective level. But if you have faith, you've been justified by faith. You're believing something that gives you a subjective experience of that peace. You know that you have peace with God. You're not walking around afraid that He might squish you like a bug at any moment. You know you have peace with Him. And that comes from believing something. Believing something. Our experience of peace and contentment, even in the middle of difficulties, is going to intimately be connected to our regular remembrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to have peace. You want to know if you believe in a little God who needs you and your puny will to accomplish his purposes, you're not going to have peace. How can he accomplish anything without me? That's not peace giving. But if you see God is in the heavens doing whatsoever he pleases, God who is sovereign and ruling and reigning with all authority, God, you can have peace you remember what's true about you because of Jesus, the salvation that he brings and gives to you that cannot be undone. There's peace in that. There's the ability to rest. I thought of this during the cult or during the Old Testament scripture reading. You might have been thinking that was an awful lot of reading about the Sabbath. Did you notice that? Do you see that there is an emphasis in that text of something to come? There's a promise being given there in Jeremiah and all of this, the one who is abstaining from working is going to have this glorious rest. There's going to be what did you? I thought of even Christmas with the reference to the frankincense. there, thinking, huh, talking about kings coming. There's a king coming into the city and those who are resting are going to know this king in his presence. And those who are working or not, if you're resting, if you're resting from your labors, you're going to have peace with God. Because of this king. But here's the question. Jesus makes a contrast for us. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. You know, one of the most beneficial ways of understanding truth is by seeing what it's not saying. Jesus is saying peace, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Now, I thought of this and, and I'll mention it now. Do you suppose perhaps Jesus has in mind here when he says not as the world gives, do I give to you? You suppose he had in mind the Pax Romana. You familiar with the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that just almost 30 years before Christ came into the world, uh, Augustus of Rome, he initiated this Pax Romana. And basically, Rome was so great and powerful, they could enforce peace. They're so strong that they can tell everybody, if you fight, we're going to kill you. You're all subject to us. If you all don't get along, we're going to kill you. That's basically what this peace was. And Jesus is saying, not as the world gives, and that same government upholding that Pax Romana while Jesus is talking here, not as the world gives, 
It's not a pretend peace that's forced or coerced upon you because you're afraid you're going to be killed and slaughtered if you don't do it. That's not the kind of peace he's talking about. He says, not as the world gives, do I give you. Now, this is where we begin to see the relevance of a message like this one today. Jesus contrasts the peace he promises with the peace that the world offers. Now, let me ask you, I'm asked at the beginning, is the world at peace today? Our countries, are they enjoying unity and fellowship? Are friendships and families marked by genuine love and selflessness? Are marriages full of peace and thriving contentment? Thriving contentment. The obvious answer is that the world is not at peace. And the reason the world's not at peace is because the individuals that make up the world are not at peace. War abounds. Now, there is an appearance of peace at times. Jesus even tells us plainly that the world gives a kind of peace. I give you peace, but not as the world gives you. The world gives you a kind of peace. Let me ask, what kind of peace does the world give? Well, the world is prepared to treat us all as little gods. And we're all free to coexist and rule our own kingdoms as long as we don't threaten another God's domain. And the world's peace says, find out what you have in common with someone and really try to focus on that. But avoid areas of conflict, maintain an appearance of peace, but it's not real peace. And the old idea is this, that when you get together with another person or you have a family get together, what are the two things you don't talk about? Politics and religion, right? Why not? Because when you talk about those things, this is very interesting to me. You begin talking when two pagan people begin talking about religion, their God comes out. And you know who it is? Themselves. And if you have this person worshiping their God and this person worshiping their God, there's a clash, there's a conflict, there's a war. There's not real peace. The idolatry comes bubbling to the surface and there's no peace. And even if you are able, because some of you are sitting there thinking right now, well, I know people of other religions that are pretty nice. You know, they've got loving families, it seems like. Husbands go to work, they take care of business. Why are you saying there's not this peace? Well, here's the world's peace. The world's peace is that even if you do have some kind of an agreement or, or shared values and ideals, it's never going to last. Never. Never will last. This is why you'll see a, a man and a woman who've been married for 40 years. They've raised children. They've lived a full life together. The kids are gone. And then all of a sudden they divorce and separate. Why did that happen? There wasn't peace. There was, a, there was something going on underneath all of that. And when the busyness of raising children is over, there's nothing left to distract you. And the conflict produces a separation. Horribly sad. It's evidenced over and over again through history as well. You go and read history and every time you see a peace treaty made, just start counting the years. Eventually it's going to be overthrown. It's going to be disregarded, turned against eventually. And a war is ever on the horizon. What causes all of this? The world's peace, a pretend peace. Why is it that the world can never really give peace? James 4 and verse 1 James asks us, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, the peace that the world offers will always inevitably come to an end because every individual in the world is ruled by passions and lusts. And these desires are bound to come into conflict at one point or another. 
When one person's desires threaten my desires, they become my enemy. And at every level, from nations to families to marriages to individuals, conflicting desires lead to battles. And battles lead to no peace. No peace. Because I want what I want. The peace Jesus is promising is not like the world's peace, which only is ever sustained through force and fear. Like that Pax Romana. Jesus has something much more glorious in mind than that. When he talks about this peace. The last part of verse 27 says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The reason this message is so relevant to the world is because the majority of people living in it have never come to know this peace. They've never come to a point of knowing this kind of a peace and the wonder of Christmas The glory of Christ's incarnation is that He came into the world to bring peace to sinners who are at war with God. How can we ever expect to have any other peace if we don't have peace with God first? And there's an experience of peace that Jesus is promising that is intimately connected with that peace. That that knowing that God and I, we've been reconciled. We sang, I love the song so much, that hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. And what is that supposed to produce? But joyful all ye nations arise and join the triumph of the skies. Those angel, angelic hosts singing. Join that, join that song of triumph. That's the message. Christ is born. Some time ago, I was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching a Christmas sermon. He loved preaching Christmas sermons. Always had a large turnout of people, and he loved being evangelistic on Christmas. I heard him ask this question, speaking of Christ coming into the world, His incarnation in Bethlehem. And he asked this question, How are you related to the fact that the babe in Bethlehem is the Savior of the world? He, He came into the world in order to bring Peace And the most profound experience that any Christian can ever have of the manifest presence of Jesus Christ and the peace and rest in their souls that were meant to know and enjoy is by meditating on the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ. He came as a child, but he came in order to die. That's why he came. My desire is that we would be moved in the depths of our being. At the wonder of Christ dying. Christ dying under the weight of God's wrath. In my place. In your place. In order to give us peace. And reconcile us to God. And I pray that God. The spirit. This mighty spirit. The one who we must have at work in us. If we're going to know this peace at all. Would bring these things to our remembrance. That we might know his presence. And know this peace. It's one thing for you to listen to these things and say, that sounds wonderful, but how am I going to ever enter into that? It's not by growing in some advanced far level theology out there somewhere. It's saying back to this Jesus crucified, the one died for my soul. That is the message that brings peace and rest to us and encouragement and excitement. 
been trying recently with the children, the boys especially, to memorize some songs so that I've tried to teach them some of the hymns that we sing so that when we sing them, they can sing too and they can know what they mean. And one that we've been singing a lot is joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before thee, praising thee, their son above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. That sounds like what we're talking about here. Knowing the peace of God. Your heart's unfolded like a flower before the sun because of who God is. And the Spirit's bringing to your understanding truths of God and a gladness. He's going on to say, my joy I give to you. There's a gladness. That comes from having this peace with God. And the charge that goes forth. In light of all of this warring and strife. Is to repent and believe this gospel. Have your desires tuned to God. That's why we sin against God. It's the same reason we war against each other. Our desires aren't His desires. And to repent means you bring your desires. Into subjection with God's desires. Seeking Him. And resting, finding that rest and that peace and the death of Christ for you and His resurrection. You do that and you will know the peace of God that passes all understanding. I pray that you do. And I pray that God will glorify Himself and that any of you that have nodded off during this message, God would even still yet bring to your remembrance the words of Jesus Christ. So with that, you'll bow, you'll bow with me. We'll close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, I thank You for Your goodness. I thank You for Your Son. I thank You for sending Him into the world to save sinners. I praise You, O God, for not only leaving us with a, a, a hopeful expectation that doesn't touch the emotions or the senses, but that You promise an experiential peace by Your Spirit according to Your Word. Oh God, I pray that you will continue to strengthen your people. Oh God, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.